If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host, and this week I want to talk about a, an aspect of my career that I really haven't discussed much, and that is my, uh, my sidelight as an actual author, writing books. Uh, I have written four books that have been published, only one of them by a real publisher, but still, self-publishing, I've sold, I think, probably more books self-publishing than I have uh, as, as a best-selling author with a large publisher. But I want to talk about that, uh, the whole process and the, uh, the saga, and I know a lot of you out there uh, are interested in writing your own book and self-publishing and how do you do that. It's actually very easy. So stick around. That's what I'm going to talk about this week on Hollywood and Levine. And we go back to 1991 when I was broadcasting for the Baltimore Orioles. I decided to keep a journal. Back then, I had this old clunky Toshiba laptop, which probably weighed 15 pounds and could do four things. But what I would do, I would take it with me on the road, and each day I would chronicle what happened that day, both with the team and me. And I didn't really know what to do with it, per se. I figured, well, if nothing else, it's kind of a nice keepsake of my first year in the major leagues. And when it got Towards the end of the season, uh, I, I met a guy, his name is Rick Wolf, and he worked with the Cleveland Indians. We were playing the Indians, and I was talking to him about this, and he says, well, I know a guy who is a, a sports agent who handles literary property. And I said, oh, great, okay, could you give me his name? And he did, gentleman's name, Jay Acton, and I contacted him. And I said who I was, and I said, I, I have this manuscript. And he said, can I see it? And I said, well, I'm almost done. I'll be done at the end of the season, but it's ongoing. And he says, okay, at the end of the season, send it to me. So I did. At the end of the year, I printed it out. It was like a brick, uh, you know, <laughs> it's a, it's seven months of a journal. And I sent it off to him. And a couple of weeks later, he called back and said, yeah, okay, good. I can sell this, I think. Great. So what's the first step? Well, the first step is I had to give him like $600 to print up copies 
of the manuscript. Yeah, it's not like you could just send an email in 1991. So I had to pay him the money, and he sent these out to uh, a bunch of publishers. And I got rejected by some, and others, the editors, were interested, but before they could buy it, they had to get approval from their marketing division. And so a couple of promising leads went up in smoke because the marketing divisions said, you know, this is chronicling a year of the Baltimore Orioles, a year when they were terrible and lost 95 games. Yeah, even though it's a Walter Mitty tale and even though the writing is humorous and even though it's uh, about uh, the emotions of going through a baseball season, yeah, 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 they, they weren't interested because it was Baltimore and it was a losing team. They said if it was the same book but the Chicago Cubs or New York Yankees or Boston Red Sox, then they would be interested, but not the Baltimore Orioles. One publisher bit, and that was Villard, and they bought the book. And I spoke with the uh, editor, Peter Gathers, who is a terrific guy. And Peter Gathers, by the way, trivial note, is one of the originators of rotisserie baseball. He and a few of his friends were the first to actually create rotisserie baseball. Anyway, he calls me up and he says, uh, I'm going to send you all of my notes. Now, I'm from television where when you get notes from the network, basically you have to do them. And so I said to him, well, um, how many of these notes do I have to do for you to publish my book? And he said, oh, yeah, that's right. You're from television. No. He said, I bought your book. I'm going to publish your book. If you tell me, do not change a word, then I will publish this manuscript. These are only suggestions. These are only thoughts to make your manuscript better. And so I said, oh, okay. As long as I don't have to do the notes, I'm happy to see the notes. So he sends me the notes, and they're actually very good. Um, tell me a little bit more about this, and this is kind of repetitious, and this is a little vague. Um, uh, you know, can we do a little less baseball here and more about you, that sort of thing. I, I thought they were all very smart and very helpful notes. And so when I sat down to do the rewrite, Again, being from television, I said, okay, this just gives me a chance to go through it one more time and improve it. So I went through and I did a fairly hefty rewrite, sent it back into him. He calls me up and he goes, this is a first. I've been an editor for I forget how many years. He says, this is the first time that an author has ever done more than I asked for. And I said, well, again, television background. And I said, is it okay? And he goes, yeah, yeah, it's, it's much better. So the next step was the galley proof. They sent me the galley proof to go over with a fine-tooth comb. And I don't know whether they did this on purpose or not. <laughs> they really should, though. Because on the title page, it said galley proof 
P-R-O-F-F. And so you go, wow, if they can't even spell proof right on the title page, God knows how many typos and misspellings are in the text. So I did go through it with a fine-tooth comb, and I think there are still a few misspellings. So now it's very exciting. They show me a drawing of the cover, which was okay. By the way, the name of the book is It's Gone, No Wait a Minute, which unfortunately was my home run call in the minor leagues. And you can probably still get it on Amazon. I've seen copies of my book that sold for one cent. I've also seen autographed copies of the book sell for like five cents. And library copies of the book sell for two cents. So it you know really boosts my ego. But if you're interested, you can find the book uh, on Amazon. Well, it comes out. And they give me a publicist. So I said, great, do I get to do book signings? They said, no. I said, why not? I said, no one knows you. You're not enough of a celebrity. So what do we do? Well, let's get on talk shows. Now, I knew Larry King from doing the Orioles. I also knew Bob Costas, who... Uh, was one of my mentors early on, listened to a few of my tapes and gave me some some great tips. So I was able to get on those shows and also some local shows here and there. At the time, I was now with the Seattle Mariners. So the NPR station in Seattle did a radio interview with me. And clearly, the guy who did the interview... Didn't read the book, knew very little about baseball. <laughs> it was just like you know, terrible. You can tell as an author, you can tell when the person who is interviewing you has a clue. So he's kind of fumfering around. And at one point he says, well, uh, you're with the Seattle Mariners um, and you do TV. Uh, Northern Exposure um, is filmed. Up in Seattle. I said, yeah, I know, in Kirkland over there. Yeah. Um, Do you like Northern Exposure? (laughs) Yeah, that was my searing interview question. And by the way, a tip to authors. When you do go on an interview program, have prepared a bullet list of points that you want to get out. Have a funny story, have some fascinating thing about the book or you that you want to get out. Don't just, you know, wait for the interviewer to ask you the right question. Steer the interview in the direction that you want it to go. And this is something that I learned later on. I know I'm bouncing around a little bit, but when I would go on an interview show, during the launch of my 60s memoir, what I would do the day before is email the host a list of possible questions. Also, a introduction. Also, the pronunciation of my name. 
And I would say, this is totally optional. You can ask me whatever you want. You can introduce me any way you want. But this might come in helpful. 95% of the time, the hosts just went right off my page. So, needless to say... I was ready with every single answer, and I was able to get all of my bullet points in very easily. Marketing is the key. So uh, it sells a bunch of books. I actually did get to do a book signing in Seattle. I said, they know me in Seattle. I mean, I'm on radio and television. Isn't that enough? I'm on every night. Okay, you can do a book signing. So I did a book signing, and um, I think I sold out the first run, but they didn't ask for a second run. Here's another tip. If you are fortunate enough to have a publisher buy your book, and your book gets into, uh, I know this is going to sound archaic, a bookstore, go into the bookstore, go up to the manager, and say, hi, I'm the author of that book. Would you like me to autograph it for you? And they will invariably go, sure, that would be great. And so you autograph every copy of the book. Here's why you do that. Because once you autograph the book, they can't send it back. It's as good as a sale. So like the first time I walked into a bookstore and and I saw the manager and I said, oh, man, this is really cool. This is my book. And he said, "Uh, do you want to autograph it? And I was like, "Um, God, okay." I kind of felt sheepish about it as, as if, you know, I was you know, kind of, you know, pandering a little bit. And I, okay, and I signed it. And I talked to my publicist and she says, that's exactly what you do. Sign every book you possibly can. So now we move forward 10, 12 years later. My book agent gets out of the business. I decide I want to write a humorous memoir of growing up in the 60s. I was able, through some friends, to get a hold of another literary agent. But I have not written the book yet. And so the agent said, no, you don't want to write the book. You want to put together a really great proposal and have maybe one or two chapters of the book, and that's what we send around. I said, okay, So I went off and I wrote the first couple of chapters of the book and I gave it to her and she says, okay, yeah, this is fine. I said, okay, send it out. She goes, wait, wait, no, no. Now we have to deal with the proposal. Now we have to have a marketing plan. And I thought, well, wait a minute. Don't they have marketing plans? No, you got to do their job for them in that regard. And you have to have a presentation as to why your book is so great And you also have to have a bio page. Okay. So I write up this presentation and she makes some adjustments and, you know, spice it up a little bit. And then I write my bio page. She calls me up and she goes, no, this will never do. I said, why? 
I list all of my television credits and I list the things that I've done. He says, no, no, you have to really pump yourself up. And I said, well, I feel uncomfortable doing that. And she says, that's what you have to do. And I said, okay. So I took another crack at it. She calls me up and she goes, no, no, this is like not even halfway there. And I go, Jesus Christ, you know, it's like, who would you want, Donald Trump? She said, tell you what, go off and write the most absurd, ridiculous bio that you can, and then we'll just scale it back. I thought, okay, I'll do that. So I write this bio, and the first sentence of the bio is, Ken Levine is one of the most influential writers of the 20th century. (laughs) And it goes on from there. I send that in, and she calls me up, and she goes, perfect. (laughs) I guess that's what all the authors do. But, uh, yeah, yeah. imagine someone at face value accepting the fact that I'm one of the most influential writers of the 20th century. (laughs) Love it. So we send it out to various editors. And even more so now than back in the early 90s, it takes months and months to hear back. And it's even worse because a lot of the publishing firms are merging. So it's submitted to an editor at one company and it sits on his desk. He hasn't read it yet. And then two months later, they merge with another company and he's out. Now, you don't know whether your manuscript has gone on to a new editor or is just sitting on a dead pile somewhere. Months and months and months went by. I heard nothing. I think I had like one kind of glimmer of uh, of interest, but nothing really that specific. And I decided, you know what? I really want to write this book. And at the time, self-publishing was really starting to emerge. And uh, a writer who I had met on the Internet, because at the time he had a blog, was Lee Goldberg. And Lee Goldberg is like one of the kings of self-published authors. He's a terrific writer. He has also collaborated with Janet Ivanovich on a number of things, and he's a former TV writer. He was a showrunner on Diagnosis Murder, and he did a, an awful lot of our television shows. So um, he, he really has street cred. He was so gracious and sat down with me and told me the ins and outs of self-publishing. And quite simply, it is this. You can self-publish for free. You can go on Amazon and you set up an account and upload your book and upload your cover. And a couple of days later, it's ready to go. That's all you got to do. Now, it has to be formatted correctly, and if you're a computer idiot like me, you don't know how to do that, so you have to pay somebody to reformat your manuscript, and for the Kindle version and the 
print-on-demand version, it's different formats. So you have to pay somebody for that, and you have to pay somebody to create a cover for you and have that formatted exactly right. And again, the cover is different from Kindle to the actual paperback. And it's very important when you're putting your cover together to realize that, especially for Kindle, it's going to be this little thumbnail, okay? So don't have this real intricate cover with lots of writing. It has to be something that just strikes the eye quickly as somebody is scanning a a group of thumbnails on a web page. So I thought, okay, great. And he gave me a couple of names of people to do that. And then I went off to write the book. And that took quite a while because I was doing other things at the time. And when I finally finished the book, I decided... I should probably get an editor because Peter Gethers was so helpful in shaping my first book. And with this, without a publisher, I had no idea whether this was a decent book or whether this was 700 pages of absolutely nothing. So I asked around and I found, because some editors are, oh my God, they're expensive. And I found this great woman, and she's been a guest here on the podcast, named Blair Richwood. And Blair went through my manuscript and gave me fantastic notes. Just great. The same kind of thing that Peter did, but even more so and even better, and really shaped it into a book Uh, a very clear narrative. Uh, I can't thank her enough. So now I finally, I have this manuscript and I'm ready to go and I hire a guy to format it and I hire somebody else to do the cover. And then I figure, well, you know, before I do this, I should probably send a, a canary into the mine to see how this works. So I decided to take all of my humorous travelogues and for probably 10 to 15 years, anytime I would travel, I would write up a humorous travelogue and originally send it to everybody on my email contact list. And eventually when I got a blog, I started posting them along the way and they were very well received and I had by now quite a collection of them over 10 years worth. So I thought, oh, I'm going to assemble all of those and I'm going to self-publish that and I'm going to see how this works and whatever mistakes I'm going to make in self-publishing, let me make it with this book and not the one that I really care about, my 60s memoir. So I came up with a title for the travelogue book, Where the hell am I? Trips I have survived. Got a cover, got it formatted, uploaded it, and there you go. Now, here is the big issue with self-publishing. Because anybody can self-publish, as I said. Marketing. Same thing with podcasts. There's a billion podcasts out there, and for most podcasts, four people don't listen a week. 
you got to be able to market it. You got to be able to tell people it's there and make it attractive enough for them so that there is value added in them actually going to buy your book or listen to your podcast. Well, I didn't want to spend the money for a publicist because they're very expensive. So what I did was I went through the internet and I found every travel blog and every travel website and every travel reviewer that was out there. And I wrote them all asking, can I be a guest on your podcast or your radio show, whatever it is? I'd say 80% never even wrote me back. Uh, I got a few passes, and I also got about 10 that said, okay, sure, that sounds kind of interesting. You seem like an interesting guest. So I went on these various radio shows, and I guested. I did interviews with various uh, blogs and sold a few books. I did okay. And so now I was ready. And so I put up my book, which, by the way, is called The Me Generation by Me, Growing Up in the 60s. And it's a chronicle of me from 10 to 20 growing up in Southern California during the 1960s. And it was such a fascinating era because it went really from the straight-laced 1950s to, you know, back in Mad Men days, to the late 60s with hippies and drugs and rock music taking off and the Vietnam War and Nixon and riots and protests. It was a very turbulent time, assassinations. It was a crazy end of the decade. And in the middle was the California myth, you know, the Beach Boys. And I mean, it really was true. It was fun growing up in Southern California. And what I wanted to do in the book is two things. Number one, be very honest, uh, not make it uh, a sugar-coated version of me. I wanted to be very honest. And so you see all the mistakes and all the immature things, you know, the stupid things I did as a kid. Hopefully I learned from some of them. And also, I wanted to chronicle all of the events of the decade. But here's the thing. Anytime you read a book about the 60s, it reads like a history book. And then this happened, and then Kennedy was assassinated, and then the Beatles, and then the Vietnam War, and Martin Luther King. and you know, Well, all of those things did happen, but when you lived through that era, they all happened in the background. And certainly, they shaped your life and shaped society. But at the time, you as just someone alive during that era was worried about homework and worried about finding a girlfriend and getting a car and being able to go to the beach and being able to go to the Sunset Strip. So the focus of the book was really on what it was actually like living in the 60s. Okay, enough of the sales pitch. I got a publicist who was a friend of mine from college, and she agreed to handle me uh, for a very 
generous fee, um, a very generous discount, actually. And so she got me on some television programs, some local TV news shows. There was one in particular on Channel 2. There is a bit, uh, a radio team called Bob and Ray, and they were very, very funny on the radio, and they used to do these sketches. And they have a classic sketch called the Komodo Dragon. And what it is is somebody interviewing an expert on the Komodo Dragon, and there was supposed to be an exhibit at the museum. And the expert offers some fact, and then the moderator, who obviously is not listening, asks a question that basically was just answered in the last answer. And that's what happened in this interview with Channel 2. I would say, and so, you know, the big thing for all of the kids in the mid-60s was going out to the beach. And she'd go, uh-huh, well, um, didn't kids, like, go to the beach a lot? And I'd say, yes, they went to the beach a lot. And, um... Then we went to the Sunset Strip and we really got into the music of the Doors and the Birds and Buffalo Springfield. And she goes, ah, the Sunset Strip. What are some of the groups that played there? Okay, it was that kind of an interview. Here's the interesting thing about TV interviews. If you are on Amazon, you can go to a web page and see up to the minute how many books you've sold. So I can do a TV appearance at 2 in the afternoon, and at 3 o'clock, I can log on to that page and see how many books were purchased as a result of my appearance. And the answer is very few. You know, 30, 40, okay, that's the Channel 2 in Los Angeles. Now, if you're on the Today Show and 3 million people are watching... And even if it's a low percentage, uh, you've sold 20,000 books. But just being on a local TV station, even in a big market like Los Angeles, um, actually, I sold the most books in L.A. being on the Channel 11 morning news. But at the time, I was back with the Mariners doing a part-time schedule, and I would do road trips with the team. So I would say to my publicist, okay, I am going to be in Chicago from the 19th to the 22nd, and then I'm going to be in Minnesota from the 23rd to the 25th, and then I am going to be in Detroit from the 27th to the 30th. And then she would make arrangements for me to go on Good Afternoon Twin Cities, Good morning, Chicago. Hello, Detroit. And I would do those shows. Now, here's another thing. If you are a published author, the, uh, the publisher is not going to pay for your book tour. So if you want to go around the country and promote your book, you got to pay for the airfare. You got to pay for the hotel. So to sell... Seven to 10 to 15 books in Minneapolis, spend all that money to fly from San Francisco, say, to Minneapolis and stay at a hotel for two, three nights, get up at four in the morning to be there at 5.30 to sell 10 books, mm, not really worth it. But I did it. 
Again, the Mariners were paying for the hotel and the flights. Thank you very much, Mariners. And I sold actually quite a few books. And that was my most successful sale. I decided I'm going to do an audio book. And I figured, well, since the book is in my voice, I should be the one to do it. So I go and I do my research and I listen to a lot of books on tape done by the authors. And most of them are done on horrible equipment. And most of these guys just drone on and on. Or they'll stumble or they'll start out high energy. And by chapter four, they're talking like this. So I figured I'm going to get a studio and an engineer. And I shopped around for the best deal, best opportunity. And I am only going to do like two-hour segments at a time because I wanted, number one, the fidelity to be good. And number two, I wanted it to be consistent throughout. Here's an interesting thing. When you do an audio book, you can't like paraphrase. You can't add something or take something away because there is some sort of program where people can listen to the book and follow along with the text. So you have to be true to the text. This took two weeks to to do this and have this thing all assembled. And it probably cost me like $1,500 to do the audiobook and to have it uploaded. And you make more money for an audiobook, but considering the amount of time it took, uh, <laughs> I've made a little money, but boy, there's easier ways of making money. Let me go back for a second. Uh, Amazon, here's how that works. You upload a Kindle version of your book. You get 67%, they get the rest. And you can set the price within a certain parameter. When you do a book that is printed on demand, the formula flips. They get 67%, you get 33%. But they print out the book. You go to my Amazon page and you order a paperback copy of my book and it's printed that day and two days later it's at your front door. And unlike uh, a bookstore where they take books off the shelf and books disappear and they're on remainder tables, hard to find, well, if you have a book on Amazon, since they're only printing copies that are sold, it will stay up there forever. And I'm still getting sales on my books years later as a result of that. So that is one very nice feature of self-publishing. You make a much better percentage self-publishing than you do with a a big publisher. But with a big publisher, you do get into bookstores and more people will review your books. And, you know, in, in that regard, there's, you know, more prestige attached to having Simon & Schuster publish your book as opposed to doing it yourself. Finally, I decided to do a comic novel and try my hand at 
writing prose. And that was Must Kill TV, which is basically an adaptation of a screenplay that David Isaacs and I wrote called Must Kill TV that didn't sell. And this was very difficult for me because as a TV writer, I'm not used to writing in the past. When you write TV scripts, everything is Diane enters, Diane crosses to the bar, Sam pours a glass of beer and slides it over to Cliff. It's not Sam poured a glass of beer and handed it to Cliff. And it was very strange. I kept getting my tenses screwed up over and over again. And that was a big one. And then there was another thing um, called head hopping, which I had never heard. And that is this. If you are in a chapter and you are seeing it through the point of view of one character, you have to only see it through his point of view. You can't then switch in the middle and suddenly it's her point of view. You have to have a a separate chapter or subset of a chapter to do that. Well, I was head hopping all over the place. (laughs) My first draft was a mess. So it took me three or four drafts to finally get that together. I remember sending the manuscript to uh, Lee Goldberg and he wrote back, he said, your beginning is just terrible. (laughs) And he explained why. And so I wrote a whole new beginning of the book. And he goes, okay, yeah, that, that's more like it. I forget exactly what I had, but uh, he didn't like it a lot. <laughs> and again, as a writer, you know, you have to put your ego aside, especially when you're writing in a form that you're not used to. And so if somebody says, uh, no, this is bad, you know, instead of going, well, what do you know? It's like, this is genius. I came up with this. You got to be able to go, hmm, okay, let me do it again. Let me try it a different way. So that became Must Kill TV. And uh, I didn't hire a publicist for that, you know, promoting it a lot on my blog and everything, and now my podcast. And for this one, I went on a virtual radio tour. What that is, is uh, you get up at like three o'clock in the morning on the West Coast, and they call you, and then they patch you in to different morning radio shows around the country. So they'll go, okay, now you're on with uh, uh, Bobby Jimmy and Susie Cream Cheese on WBAL in Baltimore. And then a couple of seconds later, you're going, okay, and then click, you hear, hi, well, our guest now is uh, Ken Levine, who wrote a book uh, about uh, television. And hi, Ken, and you do your interview with WBAL. And then that's over, and then they go, okay, now you're going to KVI Seattle, and then you're going to WDGY Minneapolis, and now you're going to KOB in Albuquerque, and you're talking to this person and that person. And the problem, and it's what actors have in spades when they do those, um, you know, those you know, virtual interviews uh, trying to 
you know, hype their movie. You're answering the same questions over and over and over again. And you have to sound like you're answering it for the first time. You have to sound bright and exciting. And, and I've been up for like three hours. And this is the 15th station I'm on. And like, who, who are you guys again? Where is this? Orlando? This is Portland? This is Portland, Maine or Portland, Oregon. Where are we? The only one that was really fun was I went on a Cleveland morning zoo. And uh, one of the hosts said, ah, uh, oh, you're a baby boomer. I hate baby boomers. Why? Well, because you got everything and left nothing for the rest of us. I had so much fun with that guy. Because then I went, well, okay, um... I got this job that you didn't want, and uh, and I said, what car are you driving? Because I, w- I want your car. <laughs> and when when that interview was over, the person orchestrating the virtual tour came on and was so apologetic. I said, no, I loved it. It was great for like 10 minutes. <laughs> I, I was actually you know, engaged in the interview. So uh, that is uh, a sample of what it is like to not be a best-selling author, but to be an author. And like I said, it's an aspect of my career that I rarely have discussed. So I figured, yeah, this will be a good chance. Thanks so much for enduring it. And you can go to uh, my blog and you'll see on the side uh, a list of my books. You can go to Amazon. You, You need to get reviews get tons and tons of reviews. And even if there's a couple of negative views, that's okay because it tells the world, well, these are not just his 10 friends, okay? If uh, 78 people have (laughs) sent in reviews and four of them say, this book suck, you go, all right, well, probably um, 65 of the other people who said it was the best book they ever read were strangers to Ken and... So, yeah, these reviews might actually be legitimate. Okay, that's it for this week. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolfert, Bruce and Jason Miller. If you want to get in touch with me, Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com. That's Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com. I am available on Twitter at Ken Levine, also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for reading. Bye-bye. Hollywood and Levine.